The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I want to talk to you this morning about Barnabas and Barnabas' view of the second coming. Now, the second coming is a subject that seems to always pique people's interest. It gets their attention because the majority of Christians are still waiting for his coming. They think it's going to be soon, right? It's always going to be soon. Well, if the coming of the Lord is soon, that that would mean it's been soon for 2,000 years. Now, I don't know how something could be soon for that long, but look at what Yeshua said in Revelation 22.7. Behold, I am coming soon. Now, he wrote this in the first century to the churches in Asia Minor. And he tells them, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, can an event be said to be soon in the first century and also be soon in the 21st century? Well, not if the word really means soon as we understand the word. And I think we all have an understanding of the word soon. The Greek word used here is tahu, which according to Strong's Greek Dictionary, it means shortly, that is, without delay, soon, or by surprise, suddenly. So if Yeshua said that the second coming would be soon, in the first century, how can people today say that His coming will be soon? If it's soon now, it could not have been soon in the first century, which means that Yeshua would have been wrong when He said it was soon. Now, I can't live with that, and hopefully you can't either. So I believe that Yeshua was right when he talked about his soon coming, and I think the majority of people today have it wrong. Uh, I dropped Zoe off on Wednesday to youth group, and about an hour in, I get a text from her. She goes, do you know this church believes the Lord is coming in the future? (laughs) And it was just, it was comical to me because, you know, I mean, to her it was like, that seems weird. Why do they think that? You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's okay, honey. That's what most churches believe. So for our study this morning, I want to look at what one of the biblical writers had to say about Yeshua's second coming. And I want you to understand that all the biblical writers hold this same point of view. I want to look this this morning at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about the subject. Now, there's a lot of debate concerning the authorship of Hebrews. Because the letter itself doesn't indicate who the author is. He doesn't give his name in the letter. Perhaps the most common view throughout the centuries has been that the Apostle Paul is the author. Now, those holding to Pauline authorship suggest that Paul omitted his name because he was the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he's writing here to Jews, and they would have likely dismissed the letter if they'd have known it was him. Now, I don't buy that at all, but that's one of the views, all right? Now, the stylistic differences from Paul's other letters is attributed, they say, to his writing in Hebrew to the Hebrews, with the letter later being translated into Greek by Luke. Now, I do agree that the the Hebrews was written in Hebrew, 
But they say that's why there's differences here with Paul's view. Well, in modern times, very few accept the idea of a Lucan translation of Paul's letter. Uh, they don't think that would account for the stylistic differences in the vocabulary, in the sentence building, in the imagery. About the only thing some commentators are certain of is that Paul is not the author of this book. Now, there are many guesses to who wrote it, and no one candidate really stands out clearly, but my guess, if you're interested, is that Barnabas wrote it. Now, by Barnabas, I mean the Barnabas who was Paul's friend and missionary companion through the book of Acts. Barnabas' name pops up 23 times in the book of Acts, five times in Paul's letters. We first read about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, which talks about the early Christians sacrificially selling their possessions and giving the proceeds to the apostles for distribution to the needy. In that context, we read this in Acts 4, 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas because he was such an encourager. Barnabas' gift must have been just to be an encouragement to the leaders and the people all around him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, after the conversion of Paul, the disciples were scared to death of him, if, if you remember correctly. But it's Barnabas who takes Paul as a brother in Christ and brings him to the apostles. He was an encouragement to Paul, and he was Paul's traveling companion. Barnabas was the first pastor of the flock in Antioch after the gospel had spread beyond Jerusalem following the persecution of Stephen. Now, in the second century, Tertullian said that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. So that's a pretty early reference. And according to the book of Galatians, Barnabas did have an experience in Antioch, we talked about that just a couple weeks ago, which the Jews were being pressured to return to Judaism, to reject the unity with the Gentiles, and these are the very issues at stake in the book of Hebrews. We do know that Barnabas knew about these tensions because he failed in some of the very same areas in his Christian walk. Also in the book, there's a long discussion of the Levitical priesthood. And Barnabas was a Levite. He was a self-effaciating man, the kind of man that you know, didn't want to put himself in the forefront, so he just kind of left his name out of the book. So for those and perhaps some other reasons, I think Barnabas is a good candidate as the author. Now, the date of the writing is fairly certain, and most authors would say this is uh, written around 65 A.D., all right, 65. We might have to guess who the author is, but we're fairly certain of the date of its writing, and that's important as we look at this thing. Now, let's see what Barnabas has to say about Christ's Second coming. Remember, he's writing in 65 A.D. What does he say about this? Well, in the very first couple of verses, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Now, most Christians would agree that the last days began around the time of Christ. The big debate comes over, when do the last days end? Most believers 
think we're currently in the last days. Well, that would mean that the last days have lasted over 2,000 years so far. And so the question, the, really the first question you have to ask here when you talk about last days is, last days of what? What are we talking about the last days of? All right? Christ, in the last days, Christ spoke. The last days of what? Hold that thought. Let's see if we can learn from the Scriptures what exactly the last days are, what they refer to. Let's go back to Genesis 49.1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Now, that's not the best translation, I don't think. Um, Young's translates this as the latter end of the days. You shall What will happen to you in the latter end of the days? The King James Version says, in the last days. That's very clear. The complete Jewish Bible has this. Then Yaakov called for his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Harit Hayamim. Now, Harit Hayamim is Hebrew for last days. So consider carefully to whom the phrase last days is primarily being addressed here. Jacob is talking to his sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, and he pronounces the general evil that will come upon them. So it seems that Israel here is the subject of the last days, and the last days concern the last days of Israel. Now Isaiah predicts these last days for Israel as well. In Isaiah 21, (coughs) I mean Isaiah 2, 1 and 2. He says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. All right, that's the subject. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So, same subject. That the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. So, this vision here concerns Judah and Jerusalem. And this is speaking of the new covenant that is inaugurated in the last days. Now, nowhere is the phrase last days used to refer to the physical earth. That's how most people, I think, use it. But it's not used that way in the Bible. It's referring to the last days of the nation Israel. Now, Moses tells us that the last days of the Jews would be characterized by devastation and their ultimate scattering. In Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in the tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey His voice. Now, Michael, the archangel, spoke to Daniel associating the latter days with Daniel's people. In Daniel 10.14, he came to make you understand what is to happen to your people. Who are Daniel's people? That's Israel, right? In the latter days. So he said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to Israel in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Again, your people refers to Israel. The time of the writing of Daniel here is said to be about 536 B.C. He says that the vision of what will happen to Israel in the latter days is a long way off. He says the vision is for days yet to come. So in Daniel's time, the last days were a long way off, which means at least they were 
We know they began at the time of Christ, so that makes them at least 536 years away. So that tells us that 536 years is a long time. Okay, can we agree on that? So if the last days have been going on for 2,000 years, how could, that, how could 536 years be a long time and 2,000 years be soon? It can't. It doesn't work that way. All right? I think it's evident, or at least it should be, that physical Israel was the main subject involved in these texts dealing with the last days. The nation of Israel has not existed for nearly 2,000 years. National Israel was destroyed in AD 70, five years after this book was written. It was destroyed. And those in the Middle East who affirm themselves as Israel have no right to do so. The last days were the last days of Israel, the last days of the Old Covenant, the last days of the Mosaic economy. They ended when the nation of Israel ended, which happened in 70 AD. Now, the writer of Hebrews clearly says that they were in the last days. In these last days, he says. So, Yeshua was speaking in the last days. What last days? The last days of the Mosaic age, the old covenant age. When was it that Yeshua appeared? Well, he was born not at the beginning, but at the end of the ages, it says. So, to suppose that he meant that Yeshua's incarnation came near the end of the world would be to make a statement false. The world has already lasted longer since the Incarnation than the whole duration of the Mosaic economy from the Exodus to the destruction of the Temple. Yeshua was manifest at the end of the Jewish age. And it says here, through whom He also created the world. Now, notice that the writer of Hebrews says here, He created the world. Again, this is not a good translation. Look at Young's. Young says, through whom also he did make the ages. The word world here is not cosmos, which would be world, but it's ion, which means age. All right? So I think you understand the difference of creating the world and creating ages. He's not only the cause of the ages, he's the reason which they were created. Now, Here's what we know for sure. The Bible only speaks of two ages. The Old Covenant Age and the New Covenant Age. And to the Jews, time was divided into two great periods. The Mosaic Age and the Messianic Age. The Messiah was viewed as the one who would bring in a new world. And the period of the Messianic time was correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. So all through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. We see that in Matthew 12.32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So you got two ages there. All through the Bible, the New Testament, we hear about these two ages. All right? So the two ages are the Mosaic age, that's the this age. And when you're reading the Scripture and the Scripture says this age... It's not this age for us. It's this age for the writers who wrote 2,000 years ago. Or the age to come. We today live in the age to come, the Messianic age. Notice what the writer of Hebrews has to say about the end of the Mosaic or the Jewish age. He says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. Okay, what's going to perish? The heavens and the earth. But you remain. They will all wear it like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, here the writer of Hebrews tells us that the heavens and earth will perish. All right, you see that there, right? All right. Now, God created the heavens and the earth. But could this possibly be referring to something different than the Genesis account? I mean, when people see the creation of heaven and earth, you know, or hear about heaven and earth, they right away go to the Genesis account. But could it be talking about something else? Could it possibly be referring to a different than the heaven and earth and the physical creation of the world? Is that even a possibility? I think it's a strong possibility. If you want to know what a term means in the New Testament, how would you find out? Go to the Old Testament, all right? Go back to the Tanakh and see what it meant there. How do the writers use that word? They're going to use it the same way when you come to the New. If it was used a certain way in the Tanakh, it wouldn't make sense that the New Testament writers are going to use that expression in the same way. And we get our understanding of heaven and earth from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament. Now, in biblical apocalyptic language, heavens can refer to governments and rulers, and earth can refer to the nation or people. This can be seen in the book of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, this vision is about Judah. It's about Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, hear O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Here we see that he's calling, he's talking, the vision is about Judah, it's about Jerusalem, and he calls Judah and Jerusalem heaven and earth. So is God talking to the sky here and the dirt on the planet? What, what is, no, he's talking to the rulers are used for heavens, and in verse 2, the people are used for earth. So the terms heaven and earth can refer or speak about rulers and people of a nation. Now just kind of put that in your memory banks for a second. It's possible that the expression heaven and earth has or may have a meaning other than the literal heavens and earth. We see that there. Look at Isaiah 51, 15 and 16. I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is His name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now, I want you to notice carefully that at the time of the planting of the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth that's referred to here, this is when God performed or stirs up the sea so that the waves roar, he says here. He stirs up the sea so the waves roar establishing the heavens, all right, laying the foundations of the earth. Now, <clears throat> if we drop, go back in that text to verse 10, it says, was it not you who dried up the sea? Okay, so now we know what we're talking about, right? The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for redeemed to pass over. He's talking about coming out of Egypt, all right? He dried up the Red Sea. Verse 16 says that at this time, he gave the law. 
He says, I have put my words in your mouth. That's the giving of the law that happened after the Exodus. And I covered you with the shadow of my hand. Watch what he says. By giving you the law, what is he doing? I've establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying, you are my people. God did this when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. He made to them a covenant nation. And at the time of creating Israel, it says he established the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. Now, we know that's not talking about the physical earth because that was created a long time ago. So the term heaven and earth is used in Scripture for something other than the physical creation. It's used to speak of the nation Israel. Now, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. That's what the writer of Hebrews, that's what Barnabas is hammering at through this whole book. I want you to understand the new covenant is far superior than the old. Because they were being tempted to go back to the old. He goes, don't go back there. The new is far superior. And the letter of Hebrews was written to encourage the suffering Christians to persevere in spite of the tribulation they were experiencing. First, the writer stresses that Yeshua is better in every way compared to the Old Covenant system. Then he says the New Covenant is better in every way compared to the Old Covenant. And then thirdly, he says the faith of the New Covenant is better in every way compared to the faith of the Old Covenant. So he seriously tried to demonstrate to these struggling Christians that the new age that was dawning would bring to completion the new and much better covenant. Now, with all this in mind, the writer of Hebrews in this section, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, is showing how the old covenant, which was mediated by angels, was temporary. But the new covenant, which Christ brings, is permanent thus showing Christ's superiority over the angels. Now, let's move on to the next couple of verses and see if we can make this any clearer. He says in verses 11 and 12, They will perish, talking about the heaven and earth, but you remain. They'll wear out like a garment, like a robe you'll roll them up, like a garment they will change, but you're the same. Your years have no end. So they're going to perish. Christ remains. Now, he's saying... Heaven and earth perishes, Christ remains. Now, does he mean that the physical heavens and earth are going to perish? Well, the Bible talks about the end of the age, again, but it never talks about the end of the world. These verses that speak about the destruction of heaven and earth are speaking not about the end of the world, but the end of Judaism, the end of the old covenant. He's showing how the new covenant is superior because the old is going to end. There's coming an end. There will perish, speaking again, of the Old Covenant. I'll prove that in a minute. Now, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 is a word-for-word word quotation from Psalm 102. And if we had, if all we had was the prophecy of David in Psalm 102, we might think this is referring to the physical heaven and earth. But the New Testament gives us insight and illumination to the Tanakh. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that the fulfillment of these verses is related to the establishment of of the eternal kingdom of Christ. Look at Hebrews 8 and 9. 1, 8 and 9. He says, But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness beyond Your companions. The heavens and the earth, the old covenant in Israel, would perish, but Christ's kingdom 
Christ's throne would remain forever and ever. The superiority of Christ over angels is shown that He created the world wherein they're ministering spirits. Now, how in the world, how is the world or the heavens and the earth of old going to perish? He's talking about them perishing. How's it going to happen? Well, David said in Psalm 102, 26, they'll wear out like a garment. They're going to be changed. All right? Now, is it just a coincidence that the Bible speaks of the passing away of the Old Covenant using this exact same language? Hebrews 8.13 And speaking of the New Covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. The first one is the Old Covenant. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, in other words, it's still in existence, but it's growing old, it's ready to vanish away. So chapter 1 is talking about the heavens and the earth, and chapter 8 is talking about the new covenant. Now listen, the new heavens and earth is the new covenant. Can you see that from this? The same Greek word, play at apalaleo, which means to make worn out, to declare obsolete, it's used in Hebrews 1.11 of the heavens and the earth, and in 8.13 of the Old Covenant. The writer here says that the Old Covenant is about to pass away. Paleo, same exact word. It's about, the Old Covenant is about to pass away. And then not many years, five years later, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, and it all stopped. The destruction of Jerusalem ended the Old Covenant. Now, the writer of Hebrews is not talking in our text about the end of the world, but the end of Old Covenant Israel, which was in its last days. And since he's quoting Psalm 102, that's exactly what David was talking about. The Old Covenant that was mediated by angels was about to end. But Christ's kingdom will never end. Thus, Christ is superior to angels. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Again, he's saying Yeshua came during the last days of the age that was the Old Covenant age, the Jewish age. That age came to an end with the destruction of the temple, which was the destruction of heaven and earth. So new heaven and earth is the new covenant. Old heaven and earth is the old covenant. So contrary to popular opinion, we're not living in the last days. We're living in the first days of the New Covenant age. The New Covenant age, we already saw it, talks about Christ's kingdom, Christ's throne being forever. The New Covenant age is an eternal covenant. An eternal covenant has no last days. Makes sense, doesn't it? Hebrews 13.20 Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, No last days in an eternal covenant. It just goes on forever. We're living, literally believers, we're living in the beginning stages of the eternal covenant. And missing these important time statements causes people to misapply by nearly 2,000 years many things that the Bible talks about. Now let me ask you this. What brought the last days to an end? When did the last day of the last days come? What brought them to an end? It was the second coming of Christ. When Christ came the second time, 
He ended all that. So, if Christ has not yet returned as most believers think, then we're still living in the last days, which means we're still in the Mosaic Age. Which, and here's the problem with that, okay? The temple was destroyed in AD 70. So we have no Jewish temple. The sacrifices ended in AD 70. So nothing's being sacrificed. And part of the Old Covenant, huge part of the Old Covenant, was sacrifices. There is no priesthood since AD 70 because all the genealogical records were destroyed. So if you got no temple, no sacrifice, and no priest, guess what? You have no Old Covenant. It's gone. And it ended in AD 70 when they were destroyed. They've never sacrificed since AD 70. That was the end of it. Now notice what the writer of Hebrews has to say about the second coming. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So He's going to appear a second time, He says. To save those who are waiting eagerly for Him. This is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming. In Young's literal translation, it says, A second time, apart from a sin offering, shall appear. Please notice carefully that at the second coming of Christ, He was to save those who were eagerly waiting for Him. That's, that's what it says. All right, He's going to appear a second time. For what? To save those who were eagerly waiting. Who was it that was eagerly waiting for Christ to return? Again, we need to remember the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. It was the first century Christians who eagerly waited His return. First century. That's what they were, that's who He's writing to. They're the ones waiting. This certainly could not be said of the 21st century American Christians. Although some say they are waiting for His return. It just doesn't fit. Now, the words here, eagerly awaiting, are from the Greek word apekdekomai. Hang on to that thought, okay? Apekdekomai. Okay, it's an important word. (laughs) This Greek word is made up of three words put together. The word to receive, which speaks of a welcoming or appropriating reception, which is tendered to a friend who comes to visit. So you're receiving someone. The word off... Speaking here of the withdrawal of one's attention from other objects, in other words, you quit looking over there, you quit being focused on that, and now you're focusing on the reception of this other one. And finally, the word out, used in the perfective sense, which intensifies the already existent meaning of the word. So the compound word speaks of an attitude of intense yearning, eager waiting for the coming of the Lord. This Greek word is only used seven times in the New Testament, and every one of us is a reference to the second coming. So he's, he's saying Christ is going to appear a second time, and He's going to appear to save those who are apakdekamai, those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We see the same word used in 1 Corinthians 1.7. So that you're not lacking any gift. Talking to the Corinthians in the first century, as you wait, apakdekamai, for the revealing of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. They're eagerly waiting. The first century Christians for His coming. It was the first century Christians who eagerly awaited for Christ. And the author of Hebrews says He was going to come to them. Now our text says to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So He's not coming a second time to deal with sin, but He's coming to save. Now at the second coming, 
It is said that Christ is going to save those who waited for Him. What does the text mean by save? Well, the word save here is the Greek word soteria, which we know has a broad range of meanings. The context is dealing, though, with the Day of Atonement, if you read the context of this in Hebrews. And that would tell us that He uses here of redemption. Full and complete redemption came at the second coming. Now, again, this is something that most people don't understand because most Christians would say, yes, I'm saved, I have eternal life, but Christ hasn't come yet. Those don't fit together. At the second coming, He's going to appear to save, to bring redemption, to bring eternal life. Look at Luke uh, 21, 27, 28. And when they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, this is a coming in judgment upon Jerusalem, with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. Now these things that he says here in the context of this verse refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. So when you see the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the Son of Man coming on a cloud? When the Bible talks about God coming on a cloud, He comes in judgment. So He's coming here to judge And at that time, he says, your redemption is drawing nigh. Because redemption was completed when the Lord returned. Ending the old covenant, consummating the new. Redemption involves the imputation of Christ's righteousness. See, at the time of Paul's writing, those new covenant believers did not have righteousness. Righteousness was something they hoped for. We see that in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if righteousness was already a fulfilled or completed event, Paul made a big mistake by saying that righteousness was a matter of hope. Because, let me tell you something, you you, you already understand. You don't hope for what you have. You agree with that? that? You'd be dumb if you're hoping for what you already have. (laughs) Okay? Man, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping for this. Well, you have it. Why would you hope for it? You know, you just don't hope for it anymore. When I was at sea with the Navy, I hoped for the day I got back to my wife. You know, and I had pictures of her plastered all over, you know, the bunk in front of mine, and just dreaming of that day to get... When I got home, I didn't stare at those pictures anymore. No. I had the reality. I wasn't hoping for something that I now had, okay? But when you're at sea and you're, you know, my, like I said, you know, you're stacked in there like, uh, you know, little shelves in that ship. And the, so the bunk on top of me, I would just put all the pictures up there. You don't have a lot of room, all right, to store things. So, and I'd lay there in bed and look up at those pictures. When I got home, I didn't do that. I didn't put them on my ceiling and look up at them anymore. I had. You don't hope. People, are so important. You don't hope for what you have. Now, Mark tells us that eternal life was a condition of the age to come, which was the Messianic age. Again, most people don't get this, but look what the Scriptures say, Mark 10, 29, and 30. Yeshua said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So he's talking about now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Go get a commentary and look up this verse. 
you'll, I mean, it's hysterical because they'll either skip right over it. You know, they'll, if they're honest, they'll say, I have no clue what this is talking about. You know, they just, they're honest. The ones, some of them, others just skip right over it. Well, because it says clearly that in the age to come, you'll get eternal life. And most people don't believe we're in the age to come yet. So guess what? They still don't have eternal life. Only at the second coming could the believer have eternal life. Notice what John says in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, Christ hasn't showed up yet. What we're going to be has not appeared. But we know that when He appears, that's talking about the second coming, we shall be like Him. What does it mean, be like Him? People go crazy on this and say, oh, we'll be sinless, we'll be this. No, it's talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What Christ comes, He will give us that righteousness that Paul said they hope for. Believers will be made like Him in righteousness. Salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century believers. It was their hope. They looked forward to its soon arrival. Peter also states that their salvation was not yet complete. In 1 Peter 1.5, he says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So salvation hadn't come yet. It was ready to be revealed. In the last time, when would this is going to happen at the return of Christ? That's the subject here. That's what he's talking about. Again, Hebrews 9.28 says he will appear a second time. This was a future reference to the people who read this book originally. Remember, it's written in 65 A.D., and so this is future. He will appear a second time. But it's past event to us. Christ came in judgment upon Israel, thus bringing the old covenant to an end and consummating the new. Now, the background of Hebrews 9, again, is the Day of Atonement, where Aaron would enter the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. And our author is contrasting Christ to Aaron to demonstrate the superiority of the appearing of Christ. Redemption is complete. The salvation he brings to that of which Aaron was offering here. Our author is demonstrating the superior of the Lord Yeshua to everything that went before. So when was this to happen? When were the last days going to end? When was the old heaven and earth to be destroyed? When would the second coming happen? Well, Barnabas tells us very clearly in the text, look what he says in chapter 10, verse 37. For yet a little while, this is written in 65, the coming happened in 75 years away, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now, the Greek here is very expressive, It's very emphatic. The author used a word which signifies a little while. And then for further emphasis, he added a particle meaning very. And this he still further intensified by repeating it. Thus literally rendered the clause reads this way. For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. Now remember, he's writing this letter in 65. Within five years, he came. Now, the idea which the author wishes to convey here is evidently that the time of their deliverance from their trials was not very far away. Okay? 
The reference is undoubtedly to the second coming of Christ. And if this reference to the second coming of Christ, and if he has not yet come as most of the church believes, then what did this mean to the people to whom it was written? What did it mean to them? If he says to them, a very, very little while he that shall come will come, but it didn't happen for 2,000 years, what did it mean to the what did it mean to the people he wrote? Thank you. Nothing. It meant nothing to them. So a letter is written to the Hebrews, and it doesn't mean anything to them. Because it was only for us to get it 2,000 years later and figure it out. Oh, this is for us. The little, little while is for us. No. It was written to them. Why would he tell them this is going to happen if it wasn't going to happen? The time of their deliverance is not far. It would have meant nothing at all to them. So, what does it mean to us? I mean, can we understand for yet a very, very little while, he shall come, will come to mean 2,000 years? Not if language has any meaning at all. Okay? If the Lord didn't return in the first century, this would mean nothing to the Hebrews and it would mean nothing to us. To tell you the truth, this would have been deceptive to the Hebrews because they're suffering. They're being persecuted. And he says, hang on, because in a very, very little while, he that shall come will come. Just kidding. That would have been deceptive. See, God inspired the author of Hebrews to write at around 65 AD to the first century Hebrews, for yet a very, very little while, he that shall come will come. How could he have made it clear that the second coming of Christ would happen soon to them. You got you know any words you might have used to make that a little clearer to them? Yeah. Do you believe that the Bible is God's inspired word? All Christians would say yes. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible equips us for all we need. Now, the thought of the Bible being from God suggests that God is perfect. God is infallible, so the book that comes from Him would be perfect also. If the Bible made a promise that something would happen within a certain time frame, within a certain specific amount of time, and if that event did not happen... When and as promised, the Bible's claim to inspiration fails. Now, here's the biggest thing with this whole thing. If this didn't happen in the first century, there's a problem with inspiration. Because He promised that it would. Notice what God says about those who speak His Word. Back to Deuteronomy 18, 18-22. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet. He's talking about for Israel, a prophet like you, referring to Moses. From among their brethren, I will put my words in his mouth. That's what a prophet is. Now, this is literally speaking of Christ. All right. It's talking about the coming of Christ. He's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. He's going to put his words in his mouth. That's what a prophet is. A prophet speaks for God. He shall speak them to all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, 
or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. All right, this is the standard. If someone says they're a prophet, they give a prophecy, it doesn't come true. It doesn't say don't believe them, it says kill them. They're false prophets, they're to die. They're saying they're talking for God when they're not. That's a serious penalty. And if you say in your heart, well, how do we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? I mean, we hear these guys, how do we know? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. So if it doesn't happen the way he says it's going to happen, he didn't speak from Yahweh. He goes on to say, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. You don't need to be afraid of him. Now listen, in light of what we just read, most Christians would say the Lord has not returned yet. Agreed? Making the writer of Hebrews a false prophet. He said a very, very little while. You can't make 2,000 years be a very, very little while. Okay, you just can't do it. But here's the problem. It isn't just the writer of Hebrews who said that. Okay? All the writers say it, so they're all false prophet. But more importantly, Yeshua himself taught this, which makes Yeshua a false prophet. Look at Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. It's still future. He's talking to his disciples. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. At the second coming, they'll be repaid. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, he says the Son of Man is going to come. And some of you, some of the people I'm talking to, the disciples that were there at that time, some of you will still be alive when I come. What are the options here? How many options do we have? I see three options. Okay, Some of the first century disciples are still alive. Anybody like that option? Option number one. Door number one. No one likes door number one. You got 2,000 year old people. I've met people who believe this option. In desperation, they say yes. Some Marines came down here from Quantico to visit the church, and we got into this discussion. And one of them, and this is the funny part. The, what the guy did at Quantico was teach logic. <laughs> and he said, I believe some of the disciples are still alive. That's how he dealt with this text. I'm like, okay. That's a legitimate way to deal with it. I think it's a little far-fetched. We got some 2,000-year-old people, but okay, that's better than, okay, one of the alternatives. The other alternative is, the other alternative is that Christ came in the first century while some of them were still alive, right? What's another alternative? Christ lied. He didn't, he didn't know, and it was mistaken, and it was wrong. I can't live with that at all. So we only have one alternative. He had to come in the first century. If he didn't, he's a false prophet. And if he's a false prophet, then you can't believe anything he said, and nothing he said or did matters. God said in Deuteronomy 18, you don't need to be afraid of them. They're false prophets. So I can't buy that he was wrong. Because if he was, according to Deuteronomy, like I said, he's a false prophet. And guess what? If he's a false prophet... We are still dead in our sins and under the wrath of God. So if God doesn't keep His word, listen, about the when of the promise, has He kept the promise? No, He promised to come, but He promised to come soon, in the first century. 
So if he didn't keep the timing of the promise, he didn't keep the promise. The inspiration of scriptures demands complete fulfillment of every aspect of God's promise. That it happened as he said it would. This is pretty serious, people. If you're putting the coming in the future, you're calling God a false prophet. Which destroys everything you say you believe. But if Yeshua is the Lord, then what he said is true. He returned in the second coming before all those disciples died. Now, I know people like to, you know, try to twist the time statement and says, you know, well, well, the day of the Lord is like a thousand years. Yeah, the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, a day to the Lord. God's not bound by time. But guess who he wrote the Bible to? Men. Are men bound by time? <laughs> yes, we definitely are. So the time statements about the second coming were to those, were for us so we could understand it. They were given to men, to people. The time statements in the Bible were spoken to man to encourage or to warn man. If God did not mean in a very little while, he that is coming will come, what did he mean? What did he mean? Wouldn't it have been misleading for God to say something was going to happen in a very, very little while when it was really not going to happen for centuries? This is not rocket science, people. I mean, this is just... This is what the Bible says. Now, in our passage in Hebrews, the author very emphatically tells the believers that the Lord's coming was not far distant future, all right? And therefore, he urges them to endurance during the little time of trial that remained. It was only to be a very, very little while until Christ came and destroyed their enemy, the Jews, by destroying the temple, wiping out the whole system. Listen, so Barnabas's view of the second coming of Christ was that it would happen very soon from the time of writing. He wrote in 65. This is not just Barnabas' view, as I said. This is Yeshua's view, we saw that. It's the view of all the New Testament writers. The coming of Christ was to be soon, from the first century perspective. So why don't we believe him? Why are people today still looking for the coming? And I think the main answer to that question is because most Christians believe that the coming will be a physical event. And because they say this physical event hasn't happened, then Christ hasn't done. Well, the problem with that is you made Christ a liar. Okay? And if he did come in the first century like he said he would, then obviously we have to understand it wasn't a physical event. It was a spiritual changing of the covenants from the old to the new, which is much more important than anything physical that can happen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the Word of God. Lord, I pray you'd give us the hearts of Bereans, Lord, that we would desire to know what you say, that we would search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Father, thank you for a day and age in which we live when we have so much at our fingertips, that we can study the Word of God. We can dig into the Hebrew, dig into the Greek, dig into the culture, and truly come to know what you mean by what you said. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.